It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and thanks for joining us. Happy Friday. Uh, we're going to be talking this morning about uh, the subject that has been sort of the underlying theme in D.C. for several weeks now and remains the theme, uh, and that is the the budget and the, the budgeting process, the instability surrounding the budgeting process, and uh, what that means for the business of, of conducting uh, government on a daily basis. Uh, and I'm joined by uh, three guests who are very active in the, the budgeting space. Uh, Sarah Ferris covers budget and appropriations for Politico Pro. She was previously the lead healthcare and budget reporter for the Hill newspaper. Uh, David Hahn is with Grant Thornton. He's formerly deputy associate director at the Office of Management and Budget, uh, and he is now Grant Thornton's director in the company's global public sector practice. And then James Walner of the R Street Institute. He's a senior fellow over there and a member of R Street's Governance Project and Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group. Uh, thanks, guys, for, for being with me here this morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, I wanted to, to first just kind of lay the groundwork a little bit, um, and it's it's probably fairly thoroughly covered ground, but I, I wanted to, to get a little bit into what got us where we are currently. Um, the, you know, I know uh, our street does uh, over at the Governance uh, program does a lot of work on the on the process and uh, little rules that maybe are in place that uh, that have caused um, outsized problems for what they are and and, and those sorts of things. Uh, can can you give me any sense of you know it, what what got us here? Is there is there any particular component that uh, you know is sort of a primary driver? Is it partisanship? Is it uh, you know procedural? What what is it that has led us here? Right. Well, first of all, thanks for thanks for having me here this morning, and it's a, a very timely topic. It's interesting to those of us at the R Street Institute, particularly on the governance project, where we look at how to make Congress work better. And so when it's not working, that obviously gets us excited and gets us very interested. But I know it's very frustrating to people out there, particularly um, to your listeners today, uh, to those who are listening. So we are excited, but I do understand how frustrating and how dysfunctional um, that is and the real cost of the gridlock that we see. But look, it's hard to see how the cost of what is happening is not directly attributed to the Budget Control Act of 2011. And that's remarkable because the Budget Control Act of 2007 was itself a compromise agreement that was designed to resolve a bunch of really controversial issues regarding the size of the federal budget, spending, debt, and associated with the debt ceiling. And what Congress did in that time is what Congress does best, which was it got together and it came up with a very convoluted way to force itself to make some very difficult decisions in the future rather than actually making those difficult decisions at the time. And what you're seeing now and what we've seen over the past several years for those like my um, fellow panelists here who will, be able, who will also understand and notice this is that this has been ongoing for a while, and it looks like it's finally starting to catch up with them. And so I would suggest that it's the tendency to punt problems rather than deal with them 
that is ultimately driving the dysfunction that we're seeing on the capital in the capital today. I mean, from a, and from a historic perspective, David, I, I also want to hear uh, sort of your your input on that. But from a historic perspective, I wonder if there is anything that actually sets this um, shutdown that we just had apart. I know that it was the the first uh, shutdown under which the government was controlled by a single party, and there were some other elements like that. But is the the motivating factor that makes it so compelling right now? Is it just that that people are fed up? It's a um, kind of sick of the ongoing process or, or or what is it that that's causing it to finally uh, come to a head and and, uh, and be a matter that people are kind of kind of taking interest in because you know we've had it happen quite a few times uh, in, in recent decades well thank you Ben it's, it's a pleasure to be here this morning as well and to be joined with, with my, my panelists uh, I came to the government in 1980 uh, thir- you know 38 years ago and we've had nine shutdowns in 35 years of CRs and so my entire professional life has been in, in dealing with with CRs, and, and so I don't know that there's any one particular uh, part of the process that drives it. From my perspective, it's as simple as politics, and, and let me explain that because everything is politics when it comes to to, to, to Washington. Uh, but w- the the math to me is pretty simple. We know within the Senate it takes 60 votes to to pass any legislation except a reconciliation act, and unless a majority party has 60 votes or more. It basically requires that all legislation be bipartisan, and 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 it the, the way to move the ball forward here is it seems to me is for the leadership on both sides to to tell their own parties that look we can't move forward we can't pass legislation without it being bipartisan because in the Senate the, the majority simply doesn't have control of the sixty votes, and 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 so therefore you know in, in, until until the leaders. Uh, drive their 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 parties towards a bipartisan agreement. Uh, we're not going to see we're not going to see movement if the House continues to send legislation over that's strictly partisan, you know, party line votes, knowing that the the Senate is not going to go along with it. It it's simply it's simply wasting time. It's it's not it's not moving the ball forward. Uh, and in the Senate, they they really need to you know they really need to. To come together and 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 recognize that whatever solution we come up with is going to have to be bipartisan, and until we do, we're going to continue to be in CRs. It was a surprising component for me when the the House actually, uh, especially given how typically sensitive they are to those issues, were willing to just send over their proposal this last go round and then leave uh, because that's you know again usually so sensitive to the the optics uh, of those things, but certainly highlights some of the uh, dysfunction. And uh, Sarah Ferris of Politico, um, obviously covering this on the ground uh, on a daily basis, do you have any sense of kind of where things stand? I know you uh, uh, released a piece, I believe it was this morning, saying that there's been a date uh, attached to the expected next budget draft from the president for fiscal year 2019. Um, what, What are you hearing from your beat? Right. So basically what's uh, going on right now is the White House and its uh, budget proposal are preparing to lap the conversations for the budget for FY18 on Capitol Hill. So Capitol Hill negotiators are are months into talks about what to set the spending caps at for the next two years. And the White House has basically been trying to write its budget without knowing what those top line numbers are. So it's actually complicating the next the process for next year. So we're already looking at FY19 being behind schedule, which, as we've talked about, is not really anything new. Politics has had a major impact on this. And, and even to just look at the last 
two years and really the last year since Donald Trump came into office, the a large part of the delay and the reason why we're looking at a fourth, we, we just have, have uh, passed the fourth stopgap spending bill, a lot of that can be attributed to the legislative agenda in the House and Senate and the GOP tax bill. And and if you think about the politics of that and how delicate, uh, how delicately GOP leadership had to move, particularly in the House, uh, they were very careful not to release any spending details to disrupt the vote count for their tax bill. So for months and months, these spending negotiations were really on pause as House leadership in particular had to wrangle their caucus to support the tax bill. So we talk about the historical dysfunction of all of this. Uh, it really did uh, come to a head in 2017 because of the, the very difficult and fractious House Republican caucus. And so we're looking now at a maybe an omnibus in March, uh, which is not that new, not that surprising. But if you think about the legislative push that's uh, that why the reason why we're looking at it this year is, is really specific to the legislative goals of the Republican Party in 2017. And I want to uh, probably just hold that thought and get into it um, after this break. But I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the partisanship. James, you've, you've written a couple of books on uh, the role partisanship plays in the gridlock and the uh, the inability to uh, get work done uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, but for a minute, we're going to take a quick break and we'll pick up that conversation uh, when we get back here on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and I'm uh, joined today to discuss uh, the budget by David Hahn, uh, the Director of Public Sector Practice at Grant Thornton, James Warner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute, and Sarah Ferris, who covers budget and appropriations uh, at Politico Pro. And uh, just before the break, we were talking a little bit with uh, Sarah about the politicization of the process and, and how that has influenced the ability to get longer term budgets passed and how it's contributed to, to ongoing instability. Um, I, I saw some coverage recently, and it seems to be an undercurrent in, in the entire story that, that I wanted to delve into a little bit uh, from, uh, let's see here, a Morris Fiorina political scientist who, who's been out promoting uh, a book. She was a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And her claim is that uh, despite the way it, it kind of seems to a lot of Americans, despite the media coverage and the tone of the coverage, uh, that Americans right now are, are no more polarized than they were pre-Reagan, that, that basically the levels of, of actual polarization are, are essentially uh, unchanged. That doesn't seem to necessarily translate to Congress uh, from from my perspective, but I don't know. What, what I mean, what does the actual research show? Uh, is that consistent? I know, uh, James, you've done, obviously, ha having written those two books, done quite a bit of research on this. Is that consistent with what you've found? And then, I guess, how do you, how do you deal with that, that sort of conflict between if this is accurate, a, a populist that is actually not that divided and then a, a Congress that seems to be divided. I think that however you look at it, there's certainly a lot of disagreement in our politics today. Mm -hmm. And it's important to remember that conflict is inherent in politics and budgeting 
particularly in the modern era, is Congress at its most political. So to assume that somehow some rational consensus that exists just around the corner or just above our heads, that if only we had enough rational people and enough rational discussion that we're somehow going to arrive there. One, I'm not, I don't believe that's likely. And then two, that's not the job of the political process to begin with. The political process is meant to reconcile people to suboptimal outcomes. Otherwise, why do you have politics? You don't need it, right? And so I think we need to start off by saying, whether or not polarization exists in the electorate, there appears to be polarization in Congress. And so the question is, how do we deal with it? Right? And Congress has dealt with polarization in the past. The idea that lots of conflict somehow paralyzes Congress and it can't get anything done seems to stand in the face of basically all of congressional history other than you know, the post-World War II era. But even in the post-World War II era, where people talk about the golden age of the Senate, at least in the 20th century, was Congress in the Senate being very conflicted and things like the filibuster and holds and all amendments and all, all sorts of things started cropping up that we now complain about on a regular basis. So I think we need to take that as a given and deal with it. And that's the leader's job, right? Because the way that Congress is organized internally is poorly suited, I think, to resolving all of this conflict in its environment and among its members. And it's basically they're leading premised on the assumption that their parties are unified. And this is where it gets to be a little bit contradictory, because as, as far as I can tell, the parties are not unified on these issues, right? The Republicans are not unified on spending. The Democrats are not unified on immigration. You know, it's actually pretty funny. If you look at the, the shutdown, it seems to me odd that we the, the shutdown, looking at it from one perspective, was basically to get a vote on something that, that the Democrats could have gotten at any point had they wanted to. And also, everyone seems to have conceded the DACA issue. Now, of course, you know, how are you going to legislate that and codify it? What is going to go along with it? Sure, but those are things that the legislative process, by its nature, is designed to solve. But the, the way in which the parties and their leaders govern the House and Senate today exacerbates that conflict, and it only makes it worse. And, and, and James, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I saw one ray of hope, I think, last week when Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Durbin actually came together, tried to put together a bipartisan uh, uh, way to resolve the immigration issue. And you're right. Immigration doesn't belong on a budget bill. Part of the challenge with budget is because budget tends to be the must-pass legislation every year in Congress that everybody wants to glom onto that train with with uh, with authorizations that that really should be moving on their own on their own and not being tied to the budget process. Too many times, funding gets gets hijacked by a by a policy issue that's really less about funding and much more about about a change in law. Right. So, but but just on that, I will say that every appropriations bill, and I've worked in the Senate for in and on Capitol Hill for right. over a decade, and every one I saw, I never saw one without legislation on it. Right. right. So the question is, what is a good writer and what is not a good writer? That's in the eye of the beholder. I think there should be a process that that helps force that discussion, and we don't have that right now. I think that's the main thing. But to my my point on the, on on what Lindsey Graham and and, and and Senator Dermott were doing is it ended up with apparently twenty maybe twenty seven senators that were all huddled together of both parties, trying desperately to find a bipartisan way to move forward and resolve not just the immigration, I think, mm -hmm. because I know that uh, Senator Graham and others are, are very concerned about the spending caps. They want to put more money into the defense. Obviously, on the other side, they want to put equal amounts uh, into the non-defense side. So I think in the interest of trying to, to break not only the issue around DACA, but the issue around funding for this year, I think this group of senators are showing, to me, real promise 
in terms of trying to come together and, and do something from a bipartisan standpoint. But you're right. The leaders of they're both leaders are not there. And certainly the House is not there yet. But I'm hopeful that this will grow because I think the American public actually wants that. I, I really do think most people want their, their representatives to come to Washington and make the government work. And they understand that, that we don't get everything we want in this world, and they're willing to live within, with, you know, with with, with compromise. But it, it's it's simply not the dialogue that we're that we're hearing out of Congress now. Well, and I would just submit very briefly, and sorry to jump in here, that if there is a bipartisan agreement, that may be all well and good. But what makes a good agreement is not by definition bipartisanship, right? In Federalist Ten, Madison talks about you know this type of stuff. What makes a good agreement, from my perspective, foremost is the process that produces it is open and inclusive and deliberative. And that usually produces a bipartisan agreement. So if you have a group of 25 senators or six senators get together in a room and write a bill, put it on the floor and refuse to allow any other anyone else to offer amendments and to debate it and change it, that's the exact same process the leaders are following now. It's just a different cast of characters. And I think that's the fundamental problem, that right there. And it sort of goes back to the underlying question, I think, of, of the partisanship versus the process. To what extent is that changes in the process and to what extent is that within Congress members just doing a better job of working together? I mean, as simple as that sounds, uh, you know, when, when you're talking about introducing legislation and, and, and not uh, not allowing modifications or, or playing with uh, rules and that sort of thing, obviously that's uh, that's politicizing the, the process, but there's also, uh, I mean, maybe it's a, a both and uh, answer. Um, but are there, I guess what I'm getting at is, are there immediate or near-term procedural changes that uh, that could be made that would actually impact the process in a meaningful way, or is it primarily just the underlying politicization that's uh, that's causing this? Well, what's really interesting is right now on Capitol Hill, there are actually conversations happening. Uh, the the three uh, House Republicans running for the chairman of the House Budget Committee this year were all pitching budget process changes. And that's some of these are very large. They're talking about a biennial budgeting process, something that you don't want to bring up with appropriators in the room. Uh, they don't like the idea of, of kind of relinquishing relinquishing that power. But they're also talking about uh, moving the the fiscal year to a calendar year. I mean, they're talking about some some changes that I don't think uh, we'll actually see in a particularly in a midterm election year. But the the dysfunction that's been really building and building has actually taken a toll on some of these members who are looking for leadership positions. They're looking to stand out and they're actually talking about, you know, the budget uh looking at budget laws that haven't been changed since 1974 and saying, how can we how can we write rewrite these for a modern era as there's a pileup of legislative legislative deadlines? We saw that with, you know, even popular bipartisan programs like the Children's Health Insurance Funding have been have been really uh, for for months were tied up in these bills. And, and lawmakers are pointing to those saying, look, things are really getting bad when we can't even pass children's health funding. So let's talk about some other ways to change those. Right. Yeah. I think it's important to go back to the question that you opened with at the beginning, because the Budget Control Act is itself a budget reform, a process reform, and members embraced it because the other alternative was to not raise the debt ceiling or to cut spending in a bill at that particular point in time. And whenever Congress is finally confronted with this this question and they can't get out of it, they they whether it's in the 80s or the 90s, they always go to budget process reforms and they say, we're going to force ourselves to do this in the future. Right. Mm -hmm. And it never and it never pans out that way. It doesn't mean that the rules can't be improved. It doesn't mean the discussion can't be more, made more rational. And certainly that's the kind of stuff we look at at the R Street Institute. But just very briefly, look, biennial budgeting, it, 
it could be a very good thing. But in the context of the problems that we face today, I think it's very important. What is the problem? Is the problem they don't have enough time? Last time I checked, they haven't tried to do anything. It's not like they're running out of time. And if you had a two years instead of one, then you're going to do this every two years as opposed to every one year. And then the fiscal year to the calendar year, I think this also ties in with the chip issue because it is a little bit confusing and you have this difference. And I know there's from a public administration standpoint, and there's very real reasons why you may want to do that. From a congressional management standpoint, the only reason to shift from a fiscal year to a calendar year is that you don't have to deal with that first CR to get to December so that you can then jam the members and force them to accept something they would otherwise not want to accept. And so that's the way that the 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 leadership and, and they typically will look at it and say, how is this going to help me pass what I ultimately have to pass, which is a government funding bill or a debt ceiling? And then everything gets defined in those terms, not what is the most rational way to get to a budget, even though that may be very chaotic and unpleasant and uncertain. So, uh, well, you know, one of the one of the ways to focus just on the CR problem, uh, it seems to me is that the Congress could pass, the appropriators could pass a, a law that basically says that at the end of the year, when the when appropriations lapse, that, that automatically the, the, all the agencies go into a CR. It doesn't require a vote of Congress. And that agencies would continue to spend uh, until Congress actually appropriates for that, for that year. And, and in addition, that we would make all money uh, available until expended. Instead of these artificial one-year money, two-year money, no-year monies, just Congress is appropriating the money for a specific purpose. Give the agencies as much time as they need within reason to spend the money. So if you had that scenario, then come September 30, if Congress hasn't been able to figure out how to change the priorities and where to add or subtract going forward, the agencies wouldn't be stopping. They would be moving along. They would know that, that, that funding is going to continue at the current levels, and, and they can plan for that. And, uh, and when Congress gets around to, to deciding how to change the funding levels uh, against the current levels, then they can appropriate that, whether that be in, 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 in October or in December or maybe even in May. Um, it, it, it doesn't still it doesn't pro, you know, it doesn't solve the problem of of overall spending, but it at least takes out this constant start and stop, start and stop, two week CRs. People just get wrapped around the axle. If they if they know that automatically we're going to continue to spend at the current levels, agencies can plan. They're, they they can continue to hire. They know that that new initiatives are going to have to wait until Congress provides that either through appropriations or authorizations. But you take this churn out of the system, and I think that brings everybody. It allows Congress to focus its time on the actual legislation and not the procedural battles that we go through through multiple, as Sarah described, multiple CRs in the same year. And that's where I think we see a lot of the cost associated with CR. And taking out the September 30th deadline every year, taking out really any deadline. I mean, you could see how how leadership would really struggle to to get their members to agree on anything. I mean, the reason that they keep doing these two year CR, uh, two month, two week CRs versus a couple of months and actually giving time to to really let these negotiations go forward. They keep doing week long, two week CRs so that they have a deadline, so that they have a reason. So it would be really interesting to see uh, moving away from that model. But leadership would would probably say that they have no way to get their members on board with anything if that if that were to happen. But I, I do think in the, the, the so-called automatic CR, which has been something that I think both parties, particularly in the Senate, have discussed in various ways to make it work. I think there's some serious constitutional concerns regarding uh, Department of Defense funding. Constitution doesn't allow Congress to appropriate um, funding for the Army for more than two years at a time. So, I mean, I think that, you know, constitutional lawyers can look at that and try to figure out how you could 
could could work it and and make it you know, consistent with uh, with with the Constitution. But I think more generally, and this is something you, there's a lot of talk right now about separation of powers and the power of the president and Congress's role and Congress's power. And the power of the purse is Congress's foremost power, right? Madison says, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, that this is like the best power you could possibly give um, the Congress, the people's representatives. And politics is messy, right? And if you have a default where somehow it's just going to go forever, then you're, you're certainly impacting that, right? I mean, there could be very good reasons to do it, but you're impacting that. And we don't see that in the, in the context of this conversation. And also there's another, there's another side to this coin, which is the mandatory side, which is for all intents and purposes, an automatic CR. And we've seen since, I mean, there's a reason why there was no peace dividend after Vietnam. It was because mandatory spending shot up and has kept going ever since. And Congress is incapable of dealing with it. And that's a whole different issue and a whole different set of problems. But, you know, but, setting everything on autopilot basically would further remove the people and their representatives, however messy it may be, from this very, very um, important process. I think you make a very good point that mandatories and, and, and tax expenditures are the elephant in the room. We're fighting over a trillion dollars when the real cost is multiple trillions of dollars that, as you say, aren't being reviewed on a normal annual process. It's not that Congress isn't looking at Social Security and Medicare and and tax expenditures. They do. But the American public doesn't see that spending uh, being reviewed and discussed every year. Allowing the appropriations to to, to, to to continue in a, in a way similar to mandatory spending would force Congress now to think about a different way to, 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 to look at, to review, and to change not just appropriations, not just discretionary spending, but the elephant. Let's, let's look at mandatories. Let's look at tax ex, uh, expenditures because that, that really, if you, you, you can't just look at one piece and solve the larger uh, fiscal challenge that we have. And, and right now, uh, mandatories are going practically unreviewed because we're so bollocksed up, if you will, and what, on and I'm gonna, appropriations. I'm going to have to jump in really quick. We have to take a, a short break, and then we can come back and, uh, and pick up the conversation. Uh, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Good morning. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and we are discussing uh, the budgeting process with my uh, three guests, David Hahn of Grant Thornton, James Walner of the R Street Institute, and Sarah Ferris uh, of Politico. And before the break and, and during the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, mandatory spending. And I, and I believe, Sarah, you had uh, had something that you wanted to, to add in there on the uh, the, the, the process and, and the, the caps that, that go into the, the debate. Right. We're, we've been talking about the ballooning costs of mandatory programs just all across the spectrum. And, and even now, appropriators on the Hill, when they're trying to figure out how can we avoid these stiff spending caps that we've been living under, they're saying, well, let's just move more discretionary programs into the manda- mandatory ledger. And, and that not only alleviates some of the pressure for them, that they can actually try to use that to leverage a budget cap deal. So the ongoing negotiations of, of a two-year deal for FY18, FY19 are 
could involve uh, some opioids money uh, being moved into mandatory, the VA choice, uh, the private sector veterans health care program. There's talks to, to move that into mandatory. And, and these are all ways that that uh, Republican leadership and, and Democratic leadership are hoping they can get enough bipartisan support. But uh, really, the, the fiscal hawks are the ones who are left uh, uh, really unhappy about this. And there's really not that much discussion going on, except um, in sort of the corners of appropriators offices right now. And I uh, wanted to, to actually talk a little bit about, uh, we were talking about the Budget Control Act. And uh, I know, Sarah, you had, had written a story on the, uh, the ongoing negotiations and discussing different ideas of how to improve the process. And surprisingly enough, earmarks have come back up. Uh, and uh, I was actually working on the Hill when the, uh, the earmarks were kind of last uh, at the fore. And, and it was at the time, uh, you know, thought to be the thing to do to, uh, to sort of sort of sort of wipe them out. It was politically expedient. It was you know supposed to be good government, and now we're we're kind of talking about bringing them back again. Um, is there any sort of consensus in the room on what that would look like? I know that despite their sort of public relations problem, uh, there was a lot of talk even last go around that earmarks that you know there might be pretty good arguments for for keeping earmarks, and that we might run into some some issues uh, by by getting rid of them. Uh, so, what is the thinking right now? Uh, in, in what role earmarks play in, in fixing the budgeting process, or, or does it play a role at all? I mean, I think the, the real challenge with earmarks years ago was was that they, they often were stuck in bills that are 1,000 pages long and didn't have any any visibility, that people didn't know about them until after it was, uh, and after they were enacted. And then we'd find out that the projects lacked merit. But at the end of the, the, the earmark debate, it, it, Congress had tried to put in pro a process of, of, of transparency, of, of, of forcing these projects to be, to be viewed by all the members before they were included in a bill. And in many cases, these projects are projects the agencies are going to do anyway. Uh, it just allows the members the opportunity to take some credit for it, to go back to their districts or their, their states and say, I'm bringing the bacon home. Um, but it's, it, it may not be all that different than what we were going to do anyway. So from my perspective, if earmarks was a way to help bring to the parties together, again, as I talked about, bipartisanship, if, if members can, can, can have a piece of a bill that they can show that it's theirs that, and, 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 and be proud of, and maybe that allows them to also accept some parts of the bill that they don't like, then it's worth it. The amount of dollars that went into earmarks was infinitesimal. When you look at the total budget, now you know it's it's not that the it's not that these projects shouldn't have merit. We we don't need bridges to nowhere, but we do need um a, a, you know if if this helps that dialogue, if it if this helps Congress come together, then I'm all for them. And appropriators have been interested in this because they say it would grease the wheels for the appropriation bills that have been stuck uh, stuck in the House, st uh, stuck in the Senate. I mean, either way, they're not getting passed. So they're saying if leadership can use this as a way to get some of these members who would otherwise not vote for a spending bill, they say they have uh, they have no reason to. They, they don't want to boost domestic or spending by these amounts. So this could actually help bring some of those members on board and give them some ownership in the process. I think bipartisanship is important. Again, it's just a question of how you get there. I mean, when a bill is stuck, that should tell us something. It means that people don't want to vote for it, which I think is important in a democratic republic like ours. Um, so again, the problem is that we have these problems and Congress doesn't want to deal with them and engage them. And we want to go into these closed door rooms and we want to have negotiations. And we want to write a bill and then we want to bring it out and we want to jam it on the floor at the last minute, preferably up against the deadline. And that's how we're going to do the difficult, hard stuff we have to do. Um, 
But that obviously has a very real cost, especially for the men and women working in the federal government who are trying to uh, implement and to do the, um, what Congress has instructed them to do. And so the question becomes, how do you force a compromise, right? How do you get there? And that's more open debate and anything that pushes away from that, that pushes away from empowering individual members, I think is counterproductive in this environment. And earmarks very much so. The power of earmarks is an internal currency. It gives leaders and members of the Appropriations Committee power to basically give add to the deadline and add to the you know outside media campaigns and everything else. One more thing that they can then use to compel people to vote for something that they might not otherwise vote for. Now, in and of itself, that's fine. But if you don't do that in an open process, then you're not going to have a good outcome, in my opinion. And I don't think there's any scenario in which earmarks make the process more open, more egalitarian, more decentralized, and ultimately more productive. Uh, and that, that actually, you, you get to my next question. I was going to ask within scholarship, is there anything that has uh, sort of uh, tried to chart out exactly, you know, do, do more bills get passed under earmarks versus not? Can you quantify that Um uh, because it seems like that's an area where you, you would actually be able to go and say, you know, this is, this is more impactful or more effective. We have multiple years of, of having stopped doing it, and now we're talking about doing it again. I mean, can we actually look at hard data and say that the system ran better when earmarks were, were a thing? Uh, sure, and there's a lot of political scientists. I'm a bit of an oddity out there um, on this issue. There are a lot of political scientists out there who say we need more earmarks, right? And the reason why is because we can then grease the skids, make the system work. And on one hand, normatively, as I just said, that may be bad because it kind of detaches the Congress and the representative assembly of this country from its people and the voters. Um, and they can't really see their claims being adjudicated. And that ultimately leads to frustration, cynicism and apathy, which I would submit to you is exactly where we are today. Um, but on the other hand, it's also the case that they're looking at a Congress in a different point in time. There's nothing static about about Congress. And Congress basically lives in a, an environment that changes, and its internal organization needs to change as well. And I would submit to you that if Congress faced and the parties faced the same kind of environment they face today that they did back in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when earmarking was a particularly prevalent exercise, then it would probably not have been as productive an exercise as it was. And so I think it comes down to have has the time changed? And also, what are the real cost of this? Not maybe that, yeah, you may ultimately get a little bit more productivity, but there's, but we've been getting productivity with all these CRs. We've been getting productivity mm -hmm. with the Budget Control mm -hmm. Act, but these aren't stable outcomes and they're not outcomes that do anything to adjudicate the real claims that people have on their government. I think one interesting thing to it's it's pretty unlikely looking at this point that that something as big as earmarks would would be brought back during a midterm election year when both parties are very sensitive about about their their public image. But what's really interesting right now is that Republicans, uh, even in the House, where they tend to be more fiscally conservative, are are trying to pitch this as a way to bring back infrastructure. So there's. Uh, the House Republicans have been holding their hearings uh, up on the Hill. And, and one of the big things that came out of that is let's let's use this. Let's use earmarks to make the Army Corps of Engineers more responsive. Let's use this to have a say in what projects uh, we are approving uh, versus giving the power to the executive branches, sort of their argument. And, and whether or not that's valid, you know, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of debate in the in the next future months. But I think the infrastructure pitch could be powerful enough to maybe make some headway on this. I think the approval levels of Congress are at all time low. So I don't know how much risk we have in terms of uh, the pursuing uh, earmarks in terms of their their approval ratings. I, I, I don't think they can go much lower than some of the numbers we've recently been seeing. And you would think that Congress would would very much care about approval ratings. But I, I guess there is there has been now maybe you can blame it on gerrymandering. But there are, are there is a certain number of members who are in very, very safe districts. 
And I don't know that they're worried about overall uh, uh, approval ratings for Congress it's because they're they're getting 100 percent you know, approval from their district. And so uh, the, the challenge here, I think, is making sure that all of our members out there, all of our representatives, represent as much of our country as 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 they can, and that we not get so uh, so, so uh, divided that uh, members don't uh, worry about the overall approval ratings of of the Congress of the institutions that they represent, uh, and become only so narrowly focused that they that they that they don't care about the larger good. And I mean, that, that gets to the, the kind of common uh, dynamic of uh, Congress approval ratings always tend to be quite low, right? But when you when you pull anybody on their individual member, it tends to be uh, uh, to be quite a bit higher. Um, you know, right now we um, uh, I've, I've seen a number of, of stories come out and uh, we'll have to take another break here in a couple of minutes. But uh, I wanted to get into the, the actual cost that is associated with the, with the instability and uh I, I was on a call yesterday discussing the the, the process and the negotiations, and um, it, it seemed to me that there hadn't been uh, many official efforts to actually quantify, but I, I found a standard and poor's number from the 2013 shutdown uh, that said it cost $24 billion um, the, the last time the, the, the furloughs took place. I, I believe that was a, a combined number. Uh, this go-round, the Navy came out and said that uh, since 2011, they've wasted $4 billion as a result of uh, of shutdowns. And I, be- I believe they said as a result of continuing resolutions, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And then, Sarah, you mentioned that the Coast Guard uh, had come out and said this week, I believe, that, that they can only do one more continuing resolution. So it seems uh, unusual. I, I, I believe that generally Department of Defense is reticent to to come out and and talk about this kind of thing, complain in this way. At least in my experience, it seems seems to be the case. Um, but I guess my, my question is twofold. One, are you are you aware of of efforts to to quantify the waste um, and and to put an actual number on from within the government, from within agencies on? Uh, what the pr- process and the instability is costing agencies. Um, have you seen anything like that? You were 35 years at, at OMB. Is that is that an effort that agencies uh, undertake when when these, given how common these lapses are? Um, well, I think I think most of the work has been focused on shutdowns. But uh, right. again, there's been only a handful of those. CRs are so common that I think agencies plan to be in a CR, and so they they will mitigate some of the costs. But to me, the biggest cost of, of CRs is the uncertainty, the inability to plan. It's really the loss of productivity. Thousands of, 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 of folks in the agencies that are waiting to, to move forward with an acquisition are, are waiting to, to hire uh, until, they, until they get uh, appropriations and uh, the go-ahead from Congress. Even within Congress, I, you just can imagine the thousands of hours of staff time that wasted waiting for, for, for the next CR. And so it's hard to quantify because we're paying for those people mm-hmm. anyway. But if they're not being productive, then what's that loss of productivity worth? And and given the size of the government and the size of spending, I would argue that that productivity is a huge loss. That it's not a it's not a you know it, it, we're not losing any money. We're mm-hmm. going to spend the money anyway, but we're not getting for our money what we what we're paying for. We we need to we need to really focus on how we can 
can take this uncertainty out of the process so that agencies can plan, so that the contractors who support the agencies are, are, are constantly waiting and, and to, for, 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 for RFPs to drop that, that are delayed, that are delayed, that are delayed until Congress actually appropriates the money. And the loss on the private sector side is, is, is huge in terms of waiting for, uh, for Congress to act. And, and we're going to take uh, our last break here, and then we have one more segment when we get back, and we'll pick up that conversation. Uh, this is Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio. We're in our last segment uh, discussing uh, budgeting issues and, and the cost associated with it. And, and certainly I've seen a lot on the executive side from agencies uh, this go round uh, pointing at the uh, at the cost associated with it. And um, I wonder, is there any sense in the room right now following this on a daily basis? And Sarah, I know you're, you're very much kind of in the trenches uh, talking to lawmakers, et cetera, uh, about the budgeting process. Do you have any sense of, of where it's actually headed? I, I mean, uh, again, by February 8th, uh, we have to have something in place if we're to avoid another, another lapse. Um, what are you hearing and do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I've talked to House and Senate appropriators over the last couple of days. They are very certain there will be another continuing resolution. The reason for that, of course, is because we don't yet know how much Congress is going to spend in FY18. So they can't actually get to work on that trillion something dollar omnibus. So uh, the the question is how that bill will actually get passed through both the House and Senate again with uh, with really a stalemate on immigration and spending caps in general, um, sort of being tied together. So there's going to be a big question of on February 7th, on February 6th, how exactly they're going to get that bill passed. But their uh, leadership in both the House and Senate are aiming to have some court, some sort of spending caps deal done in the next couple of weeks so that, that, so that Democrats particularly have a reason to vote for this next CR. Uh, but, but immigration continues to be a, a really tough debate. And even, even now, some Senate Democrats are saying maybe we do need to decouple the, the issue of dreamers from spending caps. There's been talk on the Hill this week. Uh, Senator Durbin, that was actually one of the ones who suggested that could happen. So that would be a real game changer. I think you would see a, a breakthrough in budget talks if they decide to do immigration separate. So that's one really big thing to watch in the next couple of weeks. And I, I think that as, as much as members may complain about CRs, and there's a lot of members, particularly amongst Republicans, um, who complain about CRs, they're going to vote for them for the most part. And the reason why is voting is a dichotomous choice. And it's, do you vote for a CR or is there going to be a shutdown? And what we've seen in the debate thus far, and ultimately with the deal to open up the government now, both sides have essentially conceded that it's illegitimate to shut the government down. And I think that points to the very real cost associated with the CR. I mean, there's certainly administrative costs, but there are political costs. And that is that you're not resolving things. Because presumably a CR means that you can't get an agreement on an appropriations bill. And so therefore you need to continue what you've been doing for a couple of days or weeks so that you can work it out. But you're not going to resolve things. But there's now nothing to ultimately push people to resolve things. If you want to resolve something, you shut the government down, you have a big debate about it, the people weigh in, eventually there's going to be a resolution and it's going to stick. But this 
there's always just that easier way of another CR. And I know that it's very frustrating, particularly for the listeners to the program today, but I think we're just going to see more and more and more CRs because there's just no other alternative when the members themselves have announced that they don't believe that shutting the government down is an acceptable thing to do, while at the same time being unwilling to engage in the actual work of legislating on the open floor of the House and Senate in a way that may expose them to some tough votes. And you mentioned uh, the the listenership, obviously a lot of federal employees uh, listening. And uh, I wonder the extent to which, maybe it isn't a factor, but I wonder the extent to which the federal employee component of the budgeting discussion uh, plays a role this go-round, because I noticed that uh, they've now passed legislation to ensure that federal employees, uh, regardless of whether another shutdown occurs, at least through fiscal year 2018, they, they will be paid. And every time you were, you come up on a shutdown, uh, you have a lot of employee groups uh, coming out and saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay the rent. I don't know when, when am I getting paid. And, and that sort of seems to contribute to the instability and the, you see letters flying back and forth. I wonder the extent to which now that that is sort of off the table, not really, uh, they're already looking at fiscal year 2019. Um, but to what extent that sort of does take some of the pressure off because you're not then getting as many calls, you're not getting as many letters and some element of that timeline that that waiting till the 11th hour is not not there i think as much republicans did work harder this year to make sure that the shutdown Mm -hmm. the shutdown wouldn't be as painful not only for federal employees but also those visiting the national parks Mm -hmm. and an assortment of other federal programs that sort of continued to run um and this was something that mick mulvaney uh the omb director told reporters this week he said we're not trying to weaponize the shutdown the the kind of political code word for that is we know we have the midterms coming up and we don't want to be blamed for it well, but I think I think you know the thing about shutdown is in, in, in all my years, what, what I watched every administration uh, tried, you know, tried uh, very hard um, to. I mean, uh, OMB's responsibility is to make sure that in a shutdown, only the minimal activities that are a- absolutely essential continue. Because Congress has made a decision in a shutdown. An indecision is a decision in itself. They've they've chosen to say we're not going to continue the government. But over the years, the interpretations from the Justice Department about the life and safety exception and how agencies have applied it. it, it from my perspective, we've gone way too far to make shutdowns something that m- the bo- most people in the country don't know the government is shut down. You know, from my perspective, the, maybe the best way to stop a shutdown <laughs> is to shut down the right. national airspace and say, look, the only flights for law enforcement, military, and, 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 and medical reasons, but, but going on a vacation in Florida is not an essential activity. That and, is an excellent point. I just want to point this out because on one this is contradictory. On one hand, we have these really intense issues that our members say we have to grapple with. They're so important. But you know what? Go to Yosemite. You know, I would be upset if I drove to Yosemite and I found it shut down. And if I then turn to Congress and say, what's going on? And if they said, we have a really important issue, right? I can think back to times in our history where presidents and, and statesmen leveled with the American people and said, I'm sorry, this is going to be tough. And we have tough issues and your representatives don't agree. And we need to help them agree. So call them. Pick up the phone. Tell them what you think. Guess what? You resolve DACA. You resolve the, the you know non-defense and defense spending. I mean, this stuff is peanuts. But we are sending a signal to the American people, don't worry, it's okay. But then we expect their representatives to be able to resolve issues that divide them. It, it, it's just never going to happen. And we're going to get CR after CR well, after CR. And the problem is that I think people 
think that CRs don't cost money, right. and, and we know that that agencies are are, are are they're not they're not moving forward. They're they're not replacing systems that are obsolete or or, or they're maintaining legacy systems that cost more. They're not they're they're patching holes in the roof when we ought to be replacing the roof. Mm-hmm. That patch is a wasted money because ultimately you've got to replace the roof. So a lot of the a lot of the cost of CRs is 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 lost in that deferred maintenance and lost productivity and. If there's a way, and I think this is the point, Ben, you're making for us to do a better job of quali- quantif- quantifying the cost of CRs, maybe we can then begin to get some real focus on why living in CRs is not in the American's best interest. I think a lot of people think, well, in, in a CR, at least they're not doing anything new that, that, that will, be, will be problematic, uh, when in fact we need to do new things in order to reduce cost and make the, the government more efficient and, and, and provide services in a more effective way. And politically, what's really tough is defense hawks on the Hill, uh, those who are hearing directly from Defense Secretary Mattis about how bad the CRs are for the military and for other federal agencies, they've tried to make the point. They've tried to say to their leaders, we're going to threaten to oppose a CR if you don't try to fund the government long term, which, of course, they will ultimately cave because what's worse than than a CR is a shutdown. So exactly. and, and House leadership, Senate leadership, they figured that out. They know that they are always 100 percent going to get the votes of the House Armed Services, the Senate Armed Services. And that so it's, it's they've really lost their leverage there. And so if there were maybe numbers behind it, that could potentially make a stronger case. I think it's not unheard of to, to hear Defense Secretary Mattis himself come out publicly. Some of these administration officials actually making public statements to try and prevent this from happening again down the road. And, and I think w- because it's not uh, necessarily a, or it's a little bit more difficult to track it to a direct financial loss that maybe people don't think about it as much. But I've seen any number of stories across kind of the federal space tying different issues to uh, j- continuing resolutions alone. I, I saw a piece uh, from Federal Times that said, you know, it's distinctly possible it makes cyber attacks more possible during the actual uh, shutdown itself and, and to some extent during um, particularly shutdowns, but to some extent the, in, the instability and the inability to get contracts in place that require a one year uh, time period. And then we have ongoing you know, hiring dis- discussions and how can the government be more like the private sector and, and those sorts of things. But it, it's difficult for me to imagine anybody from the outside looking at the instability and, and longing to to jump into the, the federal government. Um, and so I, I feel like there, there must be sort of tangential issues, hiring and security and and contracting and acquisitions that that are there, but uh, not, not, not necessarily uh, quantified as, as we discussed. And, and David, you had a piece um, going back to uh, to some of the process you were discussing in your uh, in your last comment. Um, you, you had a piece where this shutdown, uh, Sarah had mentioned, um, the administration's approach to it, you had mentioned that there were some interesting budgeting tricks that were being uh, used from the administration. Um, well, I have it here, it, it, where, where it's a Trump team enters new risky territory on shutdown budgeting and basically using, they would argue, I guess, leftover funding, uh, but your perspective is a little bit different. Well, I, you know, I, I think in every, in every uh, shutdown, uh, uh, agencies are always directed to use existing resources to the extent they're available mm-hmm. To continue operations until they exhaust those. So the, the guidance that came out from OMB this time was no different. The written guidance was no different than what we put out the last few the last few shutdowns and reflected the current uh, interpretations by the Justice Department. I think th- there was a there was a goal by the administration to say, okay, maybe we don't need to put a fence around the World War II memorial. 
Um, and, and maybe that was sort of an odd way of protecting the, the property uh, for the Park Service to go to that level of effort. But I can also see why opening a park without having the appropriate staff there uh, actually puts a, a, the public in danger. Uh, if, if they have a, an accident or if they have a heart attack and there's not sufficient uh, Park Service people there to, to help them, th- they may well be putting themselves at risk. Uh, and therefore, we're not protecting our property. So in a shutdown, when you've got limited resources, we're, we're supposed to be doing the minimal amount of effort to protect life and property. Probably closing a park from and keeping the public out is the most efficient way to protect not only the, the, the park, but the people who'd be visiting the park. And it definitely does seem to vary in the severity of the effects. And I think that also probably uh, colors the the debate and the conversation a little bit because you have, you know, uh, four out of the five, I think, during the 2013 shutdown, four out of the five Nobel scientists who work for the government were, were furloughed. Does that matter over the course of 16 days? I mean, you could probably argue that it, it wasn't a devastating impact, but I mean, it gets at some of the small things that that occur because of the instability and because of shutdowns in particular. Um, that we don't uh, often think about. And we have uh, we have about a minute and a half left, so I wanted to, to open it up uh, and uh, to, to, to any final thoughts, starting with uh, with Sarah Ferris of, uh, from Politico. Um, we, I, I know your, your last story, uh, you're, you're covering the budget negotiations. Uh, do you have anything else uh, coming out in the next uh, next couple of days to, to look for? Well, what really we're, we're following is just the, the the day-to-day of these budget negotiations and as i said if they're if the the senate democrats and house democrats can actually agree to decouple the immigration debate from these spending talks then we are going to see something sooner rather than later which means we might avoid seeing a sixth continuing resolution maybe we'll only have five for fy17 so that's going to be uh, really the big big thing that i'm going to be watching that's so something i look forward to uh, james Warner of the r street institute uh, yeah the, my colleagues and I at the R Street Institute are going to continue looking at Congress, trying to figure out how to increase its capacity, uh, reduce the dysfunction and the gridlock that we're seeing. And, you know, the one thing I would just leave everybody with today is it may be frustrating, but these are the natural consequences of living in a system where people's representatives get to make decisions. And ultimately, we need to figure out how to better make those decisions in those environments and, and to deal with the issues that divide us as opposed to, you know, pushing them under the rug and pretending like they don't exist. And and, uh, and from my perspective, I totally agree, James. And I think budget reform, once we get past the current crisis, which we never seem to get past, but once we get past it, and we will, um, we there really needs to be a, 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 a bipartisan debate about how to do budgeting better. I, I worry that in all the budget cutting, we're losing capital. Uh, we're not investing in capital because we're not treating capital differently than we do operating, and they are different types of investments. So I'm hopeful that we'll see budget reform as the next priority, as a part of the way to, to, to bring to bring the budget to, to a close. And unfortunately, that does it for our time. But thank you so much, my three guests, Sarah Ferris, David Hahn, and James Warner, for joining us today to talk about budgeting issues. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. Uh, this has been Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.